0: Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuels. And with the new Bowsers at Queensland Raceway, it's never been easier to source your racing fuel trackside. ELF Race 102 is imported racing fuel direct from Europe. Offering power and protection, the ELF Race 102 is a popular fuel with racers seeking gains over pump fuel. Improve your lap times with ELF Race 102. Racefuels.com.au for all your fuel at the racetrack. This is the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing Podcast and your hosts Darren Smith and Gary O'Brien. Fantastic, episode number 42 here of the Race Guild's Grassroots Racing Podcast. We're going to break the tradition here and just get straight back into our first ever part one, part two. And uh, I've got to say, a very, very enjoyable part one talking about the open wheeler career of John Bau from Formula F- V to Formula Ford, Formula 2, a, a great time there with Gary Cooper and also into the 5000s and on into, well, what we, we keep tripping over our tongues, let's call it Mondial Pacific Atlantic, um, and also into the time that uh, John had driven Joe College's March Formula One car, both here and in North America. As always, my co-host Gary O'Brien. Welcome, Gaz, back to uh, episode number 42, a part, a two-parter. How, how, how well, is it going? This is novel for us, and why not talk to someone who's done it all? Well, I do notice that you have been watching two screens either side of you. So you're obviously writing reports for Speed Cafe, uh, having a chat with Bowie and myself and uh, keeping up to date with everything around the world. Welcome back, John. Thank you very much for staying uh, staying with us and coming on, I guess, to – I don't want to close the door on your open wheeler career because the Joe Kalita might buy, buy another uh, open wheeler that you have to drive for him at some stage soon. Let's hope he does. Um uh- Oh, I, d- I doubt it, mate. Anyway, it's uh, nice to be back on with you guys. I mean, we
1: uh, I just had this thought. One of my mates, who I'm sure you've both come across, Hamo. He, he set me a task a few weeks ago uh, to see how many racing cars that I'd driven, raced, not driven, raced, because um, I've driven a lot of track tests and things for unique cars a while ago, so... Uh, and I got to 60. I've driven, Ooh. raced 60 different cars.
0: So it's oh, a lot. That's quite interesting because a previous guest on the, the podcast, uh, Phil Hughes, I spoke to him after uh, after you agreed to join us about the, the, the era that you drove with Prancing Horse and the Ferraris and things like that. And he yeah. actually said it would have to be about 60 cars that John has uh, has raced in his career, so uh, people are looking over the fence at you all the time when you're when uh, you when you're, when you're uh, a, a name in this sport, aren't they? And and I mean, you had a, a long a long standing relationship with with Phil in the race team there as well. And um, when, when we yeah. get to the um, GTS, I'll share some thoughts with uh, that Phil Phil gave me.
1: Yeah, I drove with uh, obviously with Prancing Horse in the various Ferraris, and uh, later on uh, I drove with. In Ted Heuglund's, uh Lamborghini for a while with Phil overseeing it, yeah. So he's a he's a good operator, Phil.
2: So actually, I I found some um, stats now. I don't know if they're totally up to date, but I, I've got you down as twelve hundred and forty race starts. Yeah, someone uh, told me it was twelve hundred and more than that. Twelve
1: hundred eight. Okay. Yeah, but, the but make... it,
2: it may not be fully up to date, but going on these figures, two hundred and fifty seven wins. Hundred and eighteen polls, a winning percentage of twenty point seven. That's a, a one in five. Wow. And a podium of just under half at forty
0: five point six. Right. Nice career. <laughs> 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 Still going. Still going. Let's uh, let's let's keep along the timeline if we if we can. Um I We're know two. Gary We're and alive. I Gary and I are avid sports sedan um, fans. We 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 love the big bangers when they roll out on the track. And you were uh, a very big feature in what was GT sports sedans in that the similar era in that that eighties timeframe. Tomos Merc, you, uh, you jumped behind the wheel of that and had some strong success. When that category uh, was a really was a mismatch of GTS and sports sedans. Tell us about how. How that came about with uh, with Pete Fowler and and the engine configuration that was on board that machine when you actually drove it.
1: Well, it was I was uh, I got to know Pete in the he worked as a you know weekender with uh, ANSET Team Elf, and so I got to know him. And he had this project to build a sports sedan. It was before the GTs joined, so it was in 1980, and he built a sports sedan at. Shepherd and he had a lot of community support and of course support from brian thompson who'd been a big mover and shaker in the sports sedans earlier on and when i drove it it was very new and very undeveloped. so i i you say i had success in it i don't see it as success i i, I might have got a few places but i didn't win any races it used to break things things fell off it the engine blew up once. Sports uh, a <laughs> Paradise. Uh, it eventually became very good, but it was after they jettisoned the the quad valve engine. So it was a five-liter Chevy with self-developed four valve per cylinder cylinder heads. Uh, modeled a bit off a, a triumph dolomite in the sense it had one camshaft but four valves. So it had rockers and things going everywhere. And um, it wasn't particularly successful. Like a a normally aspirated engine would have been a better engine. Um, So, yeah, I don't look at it as a – it was lovely, beautifully built and prepared, but I I don't look at it as a a successful part of my life. And at the time, I was driving 5,000. And Formula Two, so I remember at Sandown one weekend, I I drove raced three cars, three different cars. So and in the end, it it blew up at Surface Paradise, going under the bridge, and the engine was in beside you. So all this swarf and crap came out of it all <laughs> over the, the windscreen. I couldn't see where I was going, so I ended. I ended up, I said to him, Pete, I reckon I've got too much going on to drive this with no disrespect, meant, Why don't you get Brad Jones to drive it? Because he was a local up that way and he'd been doing well in Formula Ford. If you ask Brad, Brad suggests that I tried to kill him by...
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. Get rid of the competition before they establish themselves, eh? Yeah,
1: so it, now it's, it, then they, they've developed it further, got, uh, you know, it had it had lots of need for development when I drove it. So I only drove it, you know, for one year. Uh, and eventually it had a twin turbo engine in it and it's been rebuilt in South Australia, restored, and it runs very well. And it became quite good later on. And Tomo came back to the sport and drove it himself and, and did well in it. So, the, yeah, so not, key,
0: Simon, Simon Fitzner has it now and he's using it in the uh, the group U scene and, and people uh, people stand up and, and and watch it go by as they you know again romanticising about uh, about the those years and Peter Fowler and Tomo have even rebuilt his old VW fastback to uh, well uh, replica, replica thereof.
1: Yeah. They haven't rebuilt it, they've remade yeah. Yeah. the whole new car. But yeah, it's a, you know, there's a bit of a movement in sports sedans, as you guys know, to get some of the historic stuff back. Uh, I think the, the, the most successful car of that era was Tony Edmondson's car, which is you know, was built by KA Engineering and. Uh, that's being restored too. So that was a very good car. k and were very good at making cars. So they made the Vest Canda that I drove. Good operators. So yeah, it, it'll be
2: good. It'll be what, good to see. Well, see the, uh, the, the first tin top that you
1: raced. Uh yeah, sort of in, in a fashion, I guess. Um, I'd raced that race of champions. I Oh, It At Calder, so yeah, that was. Same era, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was. It was the first. How was that the race of champions? Oh, it was a bit of fun. I mean, it, it, I heard it was on. It was it was to launch the Brock Commodores basically. So yeah. the the whole HDT thing had just started, and uh, Graham Sellers was the manager. at called. I heard it was on, so I I used to drive him mad on the phone to get a gig in it. You know, so in the end, I think to get rid of me, he he put me in the race and, and then I won. It was a two-parter and I won. I, I've got the trophy. I don't know where it is. It's
0: his. <laughs> uh, there's a lesson for young drivers, isn't there, Gaz, right there? Pest yeah. The, Press of the promoter for a drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah.
1: He was a nice guy. I, I, I honestly haven't seen him for many, many years. But, um, yeah, I think he put me in because there was, like, lots of internationals in it. Um, uh, Peter Brock won the first race and I came second.
2: Did you, you give him a tap in that one as well? Uh, I,
1: I can't really recall it. I mean, it's on YouTube if you want to find yeah. it. But yeah. I, I do remember the car finished without any headlights, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> Someone backed India. There's a guy in Melbourne, him and his wife, lovely people. They, they've restored it to the same and it's really... Like I, I did a story on it once for Unique Cars, and it drives beautifully. I've driven a, quite a number of those cars. They were quite br- groundbreaking Aussie muscle cars in their day. You know, mm-hmm. I, I got a lot of respect for them.
0: You touched on the Veskander. Let's um, let's make a, a move to uh, uh, Australian Sports Car Championship, and and indeed, in a couple of opportunities that popped up at Sandown with those World Endurance. Uh, races which I guess were the, the nail in the coffin for the light car club eventually but uh, certainly sports cars has from that era right through to you know, even your, the modern era of your racing has been something that you've you've been in but the Veskanda is easily Australia's most famous um, locally built car in the Australian Championship. You could probably add the uh, MS7 the Elf MS7 in that which was I guess an iteration on a Formula 5000 but that Veskander and John Bow was synonymous. So take away the Tomo Merk and replace that with the Veskander and all of a sudden um, your name and chequered flags were, were coming at us fairly quickly, weren't they? Yeah, I always reckon that if you got the best cars,
1: it's the best way to go motor racing. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was by far the best car. K A started building it for Bernie Van Elsen who'd raced quite a lot in a bowl well. And uh, eventually they, because I knew them, both Dale and Harry, quite well, they said, "Will you come and help us test it. So I went, I went over to Adelaide. We went out to AIR, did a bit of testing. One of the wheels broke and I ended up running into the earth bank at the end of the strait. Uh, which wasn't very pleasant. So one of the front corners was damaged. So then it took another six months to fix it all. And then uh, it had, you know, before people really understood downforce properly, it had a lot of downforce. So it had a requirement to, you know, to get special tyres for it. So Russell Stuckey, from, who's still involved in motorsport, through through his business Stucky Tyres, he uh, persuaded the germ, the not Germans, some um, Japanese Dunlop engineers to build special tyres for it, which they did. This was cross before radial tyres. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic car. Like, honestly, I, I we used to, um, at Amaru one day, we made a pretend pit stop just to make it interesting. So we,
2: I remember so, that. I covered that race for auto action back in the time. I remember we were talking at the 2000 um, historic at Phillip Island and you had that car there as a historic car. And yeah. we made the comment that we were around, we were both around doing motor racing stuff when it was a fair dinkum championship car and then we were all all lined up as historics. I know. It was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah. in uh,
1: so in 88... Uh, Dick and I drove it at the Sandown six-hour. We drove it together. And then after that, it was parked. So it was parked, at, covered up in k as workshop, and, and it didn't race anymore. And then in 2000, so just 12 years later, Bernie called me. I remember I was in Brisbane, uh, and he called me and said, we're going to run it at Phillip Island Historicals. Would you like to drive it? And I said, well, I'll drive it only if... Uh, if K&A prep it because, you know, race cars that sit still, it's not good for them.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, they they prepped it. We They all came over. Same people. It was quite hilarious. 12 years later, everybody, the same guys, Harry, Dale, Bernie, a couple of the mechanics, you, me, we're all, you know, 12, <laughs> 12 years older. And, and it, they couldn't, uh, they'd put radio... Good radial tyres from an Imza car on the back of it. Uh, we used to run Dunlops all round, as I said, and uh, it was the behaviour of it was awful. It was just didn't like it at all. So I rang Russell Stuckey from Phillip Island, and I said, "Do you have any of those tyres left? You know that you had made for the Viscander? And he he goes, "I oh, I'll ring you back. I'll go and have a look in the in the warehouse." So he's gone out the warehouse. There's two brand-new leftover Dunlop crossflies from Japan wrapped up in their plastic. So he brought them down to Phillip Island and we put them on and it was just a jet again. So how funny is that? 12 years later, he'd, he'd had the tyres in stock.
0: <laughs> Testament to the Dunlop product, though, isn't it, that it's uh, still oh, yeah. on the
1: shelf for uh, all
2: that time? Uh, and they weren't like cement?
1: No, no, they the car was quick, I think. Uh, and it had a very docile engine in it
2: you know compared to now. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, had had about 550, 560 horsepower, I think, you know, where a uh what's happening here? Oh, someone's trying to ring me. Um a uh you know a six liter Chevy now give over well over 700 horsepower. Hmm. So it had a quite a docile engine and I think I did some 20, 28s in it or something, which was a pretty good time. I mean it won well, all the yeah.
0: races yeah.
1: And then um, Bernie sold it to John Briggs, ironically.
2: Which you ended so, up racing for, it further down yeah, than the track. With the Caterpillar car I did, yeah. yeah.
1: So, uh, and then John Briggs raced it for a few years and then sold it to Paul Stubber. And Paul Stubber still has it. Paul Stubber modified it and took it to Europe and raced it in historic
0: Group C, and it showed itself quite well. Mm-hmm. going to say, did Paul Stubber uh, modified drift. it and now drifts it around every racetrack in Australia? <laughs> no, he doesn't. He hasn't raced it here.
1: So no, no. it's uh, He modified it like to race it in Europe, which they are a bit more open with their allowances. So it, it ended up with 18-inch wheels and different aero and a bit of this and that, and
2: uh, a modern-day
1: MoTeC on it and stuff. And... Uh,
2: I might add that uh, Paul was one of our previous guests here on the Grassroots Podcast as well.
1: He went. Uh, he did really well in Europe, like this is against works Jags and Mercedes and lots of Porsches and things. But he hasn't You know, he did a, a season over there and then brought it back home. It's in a museum in Western Australia somewhere, I believe. But it was a, a truly, as a fantastic
2: car and a credit to the people that made it. Yeah. The yeah. um, that car, there's actually, it may be on YouTube now, but there was a pre event race at the Le Mans 24 hour race where that car raced and it's featured quite a bit in the telecast.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. yeah, that's right. It was good. It's a, you know, for its era, it was very, it was a very good car.
0: John, you mentioned a number of times touring cars was going to, was you kept the rising on the horizon to you and coming at you and looked to, be a professional athlete was going to be uh, continuing on with touring cars here anyway in Australia. Um, I don't know how it played out, but you ended up in the the Volvo with uh, with Mark Petch and uh, the crew that that Robbie Francovic was was racing in. Um, the Volvo I think was it took everyone by surprise. The Swedish brick things like that was what was thrown at it, but um, you seemed to be very comfortable in that car, and when you know, when the Welcome Shore Jags came here and all those sorts of things, at, particularly at Bathurst, you guys managed to keep those things together. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not sure whether James Smith was still involved then, but certainly John Shepherd and the, and the Volvo dealer team. And those guys were pretty heavily committed to get that Volvo product out there, weren't they? Uh,
1: yeah, they were. I mean, 85 Mark bought it over from New Zealand. He bought it from Europe. Um, and he bought it over for the Wellington Street Race. I didn't know him then, and uh, Robbie Fransvig was friends with him and drove it, and then they bought it to Australia, and they did it as a privateer, basically. The first year, that was 85, and he asked... Well, he was trying to get a works driver, I think, for the Sandown Bathurst Enduros. He was trying to get Lammers or... Thomas Lindstrom or somebody, but he he ended up not getting them. So he asked me to drive. So I think just because he he probably didn't have to pay me and Mm -hmm. I was, you know, free, (laughs) FOC. So I drove with Robbie in those two races. We DNF'd in both of them. Uh, So it was my first proper racing touring car experience. Uh, Then the following year, Mark had... He Mark's a good salesman too. He'd he, he convinced Volvo Australia and the dealers, and that's where James Smith got involved and Bob uh, Atkin from Scuderia Veloce, and they were quite, you know, uh, instrumental in it becoming the Volvo dealer team. So the cars, car was painted white. Robbie started the season, they only had one car, and Sheppo was the team manager and ran the cars from Calder Park garages out there where Bob Jane operated from. And I think it was the third or fourth round, they secured another car from the factory, which was a right-hand drive car. It was the only right-hand drive car existed in those days. The factory had, they were genuinely factory-built cars from Volvo themselves, not some, you know, constructor or race team or something. And the right-hand drive car came to Australia. They'd built it to test it on right-hand circuits, and the drivers didn't like it because they'd all driven left-hand drive forever. So it was secured by the team here, and I raced it. It turned up for the Adelaide Round AIR, and uh, it turned up without a front anti-roll bar on it. I don't know whether it didn't have one ever, but I I asked Sheppo could I get K&A to put one on it and they manufactured one for me overnight. And I was on the front row the next day. So it was my first touring car championship race. And I outbraked myself at turn one and ran out of talent. So,
0: Kind of like your first race in the open wheel as a Formula Vs at Basketball, we learnt uh, an hour or so ago. <laughs> I was a
1: bit, uh, you know, intent on winning the race at the first corner, which I've since learnt not to
2: do. But... um I reckon we can then, get some footage where you have tried to, though. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but isn't that. isn't that the name of the game, to uh, explore the limits? Yeah, this was past the limits, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but
1: that's when you find out where the limit is. Uh, anyway, so it's funny. There's an ongoing story. So the following weekend, we go to Perth, uh, and I was on pole. So my second ever championship race, I was on pole. Peter Brock was next to me, and... Off we go in the race, and I'm behind him. He beat me off the start, which wouldn't be hard. And uh, I'm behind him, and he, he's making all these blues. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I, I think I'm going to pass this bloke. So I passed him and drove away from him. And then the car broke down. So I could have won my second ever Touringo race, but I didn't. So it's <laughs> many, many times in my life, could have, would have, should have. But uh, anyway, after that, Robbie decided that he wanted that car because it was better. Because <laughs> so he, he, it had uh, a roll bar. No, he pulled rank, So he got the, the car and I got the old one, the left hand drive one. Anyway, it was a good, it was a good, uh, I had a good time. John Shepard was terrific. I liked Mark Petch a lot. I've, I still have, you know, conversations with him. Um, I mean, it was just, you know, it was my introduction to touring car racing, which, which I thought was terrific. But by the end of the year, it had all unravelled. You know, there was a controversy with between Shippo and Robbie, and Chippo was there
2: San- an incident at uh, Sandown about a door? You've yeah. <laughs> 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 got a good memory. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, so, they, they built. The team, John Shepherd's team, built a new car. Like, so all the parts came from Europe in a big, big wooden crates, you know, and they built a new car, but it was running late. So this is before the Sandown 500 in 1986. So it's a way, ways ago. And so the car wasn't there on Friday. They were still bolting it together. So that means Robbie's car wasn't there on Friday either. Uh, and when they unloaded them, which was in the afternoon, sometimes, so we'd missed Friday practice. Um, they unloaded them, and Robbie sort of mar- marched into the the workshop, which is the same as it is now, you know, the the uh, garages at Sandown, and kicked the door in on the new car. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was so, he so he was so irate about being late and missing practice. Uh, that he kicked the door in, so Shepo sacked him <laughs> on the spot. So then they have a press release about oh dear, it was messy. Oh dear,
2: <laughs> what do you do?
0: Just stand there and say nothing,
1: yeah, absolutely. That's what I did to stand you there ta- and say nothing.
0: You take a right hand drive car back, that's what you do.
1: <laughs> no, the new car was right hand drive as well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the- I, 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 I drove it about four. Four years ago, Mark Petch ended up with the new car back and the Swedish right-hand drive car, which he's since converted back to an Egenberger car, which it was, left-hand drive, and it's being restored now. The right-hand drive car I raced at Phillip Island and I raced at Hampton Downs. So it was like going back in time. I love that going back in time stuff. It's really interesting. because a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do as much as I can. So, what, do. what's
2: the one Mark's got now that's uh, been we've seen in recent times at Sydney Motorsport Park at the Muscle Car Masters? Yeah, that was recent times, though, Gary, as, as you may
0: be
1: aware, is like five years ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That's, re- so, that's recent. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. That was the right-hand drive car built in Australia by John. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Yeah, so, yeah. but it was all built out of factory bits, you yeah. know. The, all the stuff came And uh, So the other car The one that Robbie Repossessed from me Is being Restored by Mark Pitch In New Zealand now And he's he hopes to have it Finished this year Sometime So I'm hoping You know I'll get a drive in that as well Because that was my first You know Touring car championship car mm. And he has been converted To wet Egan spec now Because it was driven by Uh Brancatelli and all those guys that drove factory cars. The wide-eyed Brancatelli. <laughs> Dick used to call him Broken Telly. <laughs> <laughs> he was—he was, he
2: was an odd-looking character. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear, oh, dear! He yes. looked like a motorcycle rider out of um, the the gumball Rally.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He, he, Exactly right. Those, there's, there's been some fun, funny characters we've come across in the in this uh, journey, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and many, many more to come. Motorsport attracts them. That's part of it, isn't it? John, yeah, going, it to, going to Mount Panorama in the Volvo must have been interesting. I mean, if you look in hindsight, you had many years driving. You know, one of the two brands that's accepted to win races up there, uh, the the Ford with uh, with DJR in in group, both Group A and uh and and in supercar trim but going with the Volvo must have been a, an interesting experience i know it was group a and there was jags and others there but certainly that was it 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 presented a different silhouette that was kind of unbathurst wasn't it well
1: yeah it was but i mean these the volvos were good cars i mean they you know they were the brunt of people's jokes in their day because they were quite square and boxy and narrow but they were factory produced, factory-developed, proper racing cars. And, yeah. you know, the first time I went there was 85. I'd never been to Bathurst before, long before simulators or, you know, looking at uh, footage was easy, like it is now. Um, and, and it was a quite a shock to race a touring car, first of all, which was very high centre of gravity and, narrow and nothing like the group of an open wheeler. And then it was left-hand drive on a circuit that was challenging. You know, it was very challenging. So the first day I was struggling with it, Uh, not helped by the fact that Robbie didn't give you many laps in it, you know, so which was normal for the co-driver in those days, you know, the the main driver used to hog the car. Uh, So I asked Alan Grice, I've told this story a thousand times, um, if he'd help me. And he drove me around, to his eternal credit, uh, he drove me around the circuit in his road car that night and gave me a lot of really good pointers about where to place it, what what it will feel like, what to ignore. Because, unknown to a lot of people, Grice used to race open wheelers in his earlier life, so... Mm. He understood what an open wheeler person expected, so basically he detuned me from an open wheeler. And uh, the next day I was fine, and I and I was I've been fine ever since, to be honest. So I uh, I always pay tribute to him because you know he was known as a hard man, and he he was a hard
2: man on the track, but uh, he was a good good guy to me. He's obviously better to you than what he was to Bob Morris when he had him as a teammate.
1: I oh, heard yeah. that
0: story about Waterloo. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's just his humour. <laughs> <laughs> hey, John, just, oh, on, oh, just on Mount Panorama, was, was, was one of the things, and I noticed this about Mount Panorama, was going from, you know, purpose-made racetracks, you know, let's call it Phillip Island, AIR Calder, et cetera, et cetera, you can see through the corner that panorama, you arrive at the corner and, you know, five or six metres ahead of you, you can't see it because there's a there's a wall there and you just can't, you haven't got the the vision through the corner. Is that is that something that was plaguing you on those first few um, practice sessions out there?
1: Uh, I can't recall the day that was plaguing me. What was plaguing me more than anything was the way the car felt. You know, t- touring cars in those days shook and shimmied and rocked and rolled and, you know, they were, you know, it wasn't didn't instill mega confidence in you, so that was the biggest drama I had, and that's what Gricey sort of told me how to uh, how to deal with it. So the next day, I was without even trying to be, I was faster than Robbie, which created a few issues in the team. So
0: I'm feeling the pulse of this whole relationship with Robbie Francis. <laughs> the heartbeat's quite high. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> it was. It, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, not that I was trying to cause any drama. I honestly wasn't. I mean, I was grateful to have a drive, and I was never. I was never disrespectful to him. But um, he was a, you know, quite a motive sort of character. And John Shepherd was a very regulated team boss. Uh, ruled with an iron fist, you know, which is, you know, he he was his attention to detail was, was minute. That's why he had so much success in the Brock, Tirana days, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it wasn't the best, but but unfortunately, in the after the uh, door
2: kicking incident, the, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was. Um, so I guess he's not on your Christmas card list, is he? <laughs> or vice uh, versa. No, I've only
1: seen him once or twice since. To be honest, um, they came, he came over. He was, as I said, he was dismissed by shipo and then the Volvo team disbanded because yeah. it was incredibly embarrassing to them because he just won the championship by yeah. you know. Mm. So, uh, and overseas the Volvo team, which was I think called RAS at the time, that Eggenberger had lost the deal. Uh, they got done for illegal fuel. So I think Volvo just pulled the roller doors down and said, well, we're <laughs> out of here.
2: You
1: know, to those, do some better those, deals. Yeah, those car, those car companies are not – they don't like negative publicity. So that's that was the end of that. So I went from a, you know, first opportunity touring car racer, which I, I wanted to be because it was the most professional game in town, I went to being out of a drive again. So,
0: yeah, that was – well you know,
1: wasn't a pleasant experience. I thought
0: I'd arrived. Group A rolled on, and as did you, and uh, very quickly, um, you know those Eggenberger cars again, the uh, the uh, the Sierras, and that started to become right to the prominence. You found yourself um, working with dick johnson. how how was the what was the initial conversation with what was, I would have to say one of Australia's most enduring, Partnerships, John Bow and, and Dick Johnson. What what was the introduction to Dick to have John Bau come and join his team?
1: Um, I, look, honestly, it's hard to know. I mean, Dick tells one story and I tell another. So uh, he he reckons. Re- <laughs> 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 and I, like I got to say, him and I are still friends. I'm friends with his family, He's, his son, his grandson, his wife. We're still. Mates, you know, we don't see each other that often, but we're still good friends. Uh, I'm sorry, I've had to come downstairs to plug my phone in. Um, he says that I sent him a Christmas card and that he, he didn't know who it was from, but I think that's a bit of a Queensland poetic license. <laughs> uh, in actual fact. There was a Nissan Pulsar series during that first 1985. Oh, that was big crash ones. <laughs> yeah. You're one of the few people uh, that remembers it, Gary. <laughs> I can
2: remember a car rolling at Amaru. one at. Um... That was mine.
1: <laughs> that was mine. And, and the other one was Pete McKay, and that was I caused yeah. it. Yeah, Adelaide so, like,
2: international oh, raceway wasn't it
1: uh probably I can't remember they it was um just quickly to go off the dick Johnson story for a minute the they'd announced this uh and the the, the only way you ever heard any news about motorsport in those days was auto action
2: racing car news or well,
1: racing certainly. car news sorry yeah. yeah you're right um but that was a monthly you know so mm-hmm they'd announced they were going to have this Nissan Pulsar ET series, which are a little turbo car. And uh, so Howard Marsden at that stage was the motorsport manager for Nissan. So as I did with Graeme Sellers, I rang Howard every couple of days to try and get into this series. Because I was racing my role, open wheelers. And eventually Howard, I think for the same reason, put me put me in. So there was, you know, all the star touring car drivers of the day, plus plus a uh, couple of rally guys, it was it was good, but the cars were dreadful cars, and uh, they they were on unbuffed tyres, and they were just <laughs> evil, evil cars. So it's not that anybody wanted to crash them; you just couldn't help it. <laughs> 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 so they'd arrive at the track on a big transporter thing they'd all be pristine and by the time they
0: went home there wouldn't be a straight panel on any of them <laughs> Tony Cochran anyway, wasn't yeah. managing them as well was he? Was he in the background? <laughs> no, no
1: he used to draw draw start. that's how I got to know Dick and Jill he had, had to draw starting positions out of a hat and Jill uh, had a, a a briefcase that had about ten stopwatches in it, and she could time every car. So after a, you know you had a fifteen minute practice session on Sunday morning, you didn't. That was the only time you drove them. And then I'd go over to Jill and say, "How do I go, Jill?" And she would know the lap times of everybody. So you know it was it was interesting. And the good thing about it was that they actually paid you. So they hey, paid yeah, you, yeah. paid your flights, they paid your accommodation, and they paid your money. But I can't remember how much it was. Obviously, it wasn't much, otherwise I would still have some. But it's, yeah, uh, you know, it, it was, it was just a bit of entertainment, fun. And during that time, obviously, I got to know Dick and Jill quite well. So, come the end of '87, I think Dick was under pressure, probably to get a driver, another driver, and I'm not sure why. Uh, and one of his friends in Tasmania, uh, guy that ran Pride Autos, John Dixon, has just passed away, sadly. He was a sort of a fan of mine from Tasmania because I'd grown up there, raced there. John was involved in racing with, with besants and of you know other people. So I think John Dixon recommended me and so Dick rang me and said, you know, have you got anything organised? And I I sort of had some irons in the fire, but nothing firm. So eventually he, he said, well, you know, come up and have a test. So I did. And I, and I was very lucky that by the time I got there, they'd gone through all the gremlins that Sierra's had. And, you know, I arrived at a very well-oiled, team with very good cars so I was became a bit of an overnight sensation
0: with those Sierras um you know we sort of touched on with the open wheels, that the transition from um from 5000 to the to the the Mondial's Atlantics etc the the move into those Sierras which from the outside were bucking broncos of of cars the, was there, the, the move from the Volvo to the Sierra, was there much of a transition in that sort of delivery of power and how you uh, how you used it?
1: Oh, not really, mate. I, I don't think, you know, I think if you can, I mean, there's, there's proof of it today still too. You know, if you can drive, you can drive. Yeah. You know, you just need to familiarise yourself with the behaviour of it. I mean, nowadays there's, there's, it's much simpler because there's all this data that, that the cars collect uh you know and, and professional race teams have you know data engineers and proper engineers in those days there was you know a team manager and and mechanics that worked on the car but i didn't find this, this thing with the sierra and i as i've mentioned off the air that i raced it again or one of dick's sierras again in uh at Hampton, not Hampton, Downs. Um, Taupo. No. Taupo. No, not Taupo. But uh, um, Christchurch. Levels. Whatever Levels. Whatever the track is there. And yep. and, uh, and at Terratonga last year. So the big issue with the Sierra is the turbo lag because they had a big turbo, which in turn creates lots of lag. In those days, it did anyway. And mm-hmm. so you had absolutely zero virtually zero power, very doggy, slow, drony power up to about four thousand revs, and then it took off like a scalded rabbit. So light
2: switch type situation. Yeah,
1: yeah, light like, light like, light switch type power delivery here. And they only had small small tires. Like they had nine inch wide wheels. So they, they didn't and you developed even though there was no data then, there was a bit of engine data. Um you developed a style of driving them that was actually opposite what you normally would do in a normally aspirated car. So,
0: But you developed that, you know, on your own because you just did. That era of Group A, you know, the the Shell XMO transporter would arrive in the paddock and then everyone else would metaphorically arrive in behind it, knowing that uh, that's the same transporter they're going to be following around all, all weekend long. Big crowds, like you said, the transition um, You know, in, in open wheelers, there was a, a big fields and Group A boomed in Australia for a while. And um, John Bow and Dick Johnson and then sort of later on a couple of other Sierras like Glenn Seton um, arrived and, and were very fast. And in particularly the DJR Sierras then took on the world. And those two cars with you two guys at the wheel became the fastest and most successful Sierras on the planet it must have been um, it must have been a pretty good time in your racing career
1: oh yeah well, it was it was terrific i mean you know like i said the best best way to do well in sports is to get the best car yeah yeah so uh, you know 88 and 89 we were very strong the 89 car was better again because it ended up with a, a, a later model bosch motronic engine management which was better um so, yeah, we, you know, we had a, we enjoyed a, a success then. And then also it was interesting in as much as the category had three different tire or four different tire manufacturers involved. So we did quite a lot of testing for Dunlop. We were always contracted to Dunlop, but, uh, Cito had, uh, he had Yokohama to start with. He ended up with Bridgestone. Um, Brock had Bridgestone. Bondi had Toyo, I think, uh, yeah, so it was, you know, it was, it was, was long Longhurst on the Yoko's. Yoko's, uh, Andrew Medici was on Yoko's, uh, although then he drove for Brock at one stage. I can't remember the timing, but it, it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like the Group A concept because it was world. It was a world category, you know. Um, so you've got people from overseas coming out here sometimes and Bathurst was always interesting. Uh Eventually, it was it was destroyed by Godzilla. Really, to be honest, yeah, because uh, I mean, nobody in those four wheel drive is is a is a big advantage. So in those days, no one really quite understood how big an advantage, but it was a big advantage.
2: And a and turbo and a turbo multiplication factor really ruled the conventional V eights out of. The equation as well didn't it yeah it did yeah because because we did
1: run to proper group a rules which mm. were fabricated yeah. in paris by the fia and you know um, it wasn't like nowadays you, if, you, if you get beaten you have a bit of a drizzle and then someone gives you something
2: <laughs> they used to do it in group c
0: <laughs> yeah i know
1: yeah so it's gone back to that hasn't it really? yeah.
0: <laughs> we'll get on we'll get on the nation's cup soon
1: yeah that's the same as that yeah so you know I mean the good thing about about uh, following a set set of regulations is that that there's no room for any of that you know it doesn't matter how strong a a lobby you have it's the laws are made up in overseas and that's what you need to follow so I I like that myself I mean there's, there's another school of thought that says everybody should be equal. It's just like communism, you know. It's mm. it's a great idea, but it
0: doesn't work. Yeah. Everyone's born equal, just some are more equal than others. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. John, just a specific instance in that that Group A era, Sierra style, winning the 1,000 at Mount Panorama. Um, you know, as I said, Mount Panorama is painted blue and red and, and it, it will change eventually, I'm sure, as, as the world changes. But in that era, it was it was all about the Ford versus Holden and, and there was Jags and Volvos and other things mixed in. What was it like being on the site and being that guy with Dick Johnson getting the big trophy that day?
1: Uh, it was it was great. I mean, first of all, though, I mean, this blue and red stuff, that only happened in the, the Tony Cochran era, really. I mean, it was no blue or red. You know, Moffat's GTHO was red orange and Dick's Sierras were were red and you know like I don't know when and Ford, Ford has always been blue because of their badge and I guess that's where the red came from from Holden for, for the lion or something I don't know but it was a you know it's a, it's only a recent yeah. Yeah. thing really but um, to go back to your question we'd come second in Dick and I'd come second to Bathurst in 88 and should have could have (laughs) won so we went there in 89 and we honestly expected to win you know you fact most years you go to Bathurst you you think you've got a chance otherwise you wouldn't go Mm. but uh in 89 we, we you know our cars we came first and second in the championship the cars were Strong, reliable. Neil Lowe was a mainstay of that at the time. He who had come over from New Zealand and worked for Brock and HDT, and then Dick had hired him in '87. Uh, Alan Draper, who's since left us, was very instrumental in the engine stuff. And and Dick was always very interested, you know, engine motivated. So we had a really great car and a great team of people. So. I think we did, and this is some, someone told me this. It's not something I was aware of at the time, but I think we led every single lap of the race. I don't think we lost the lead in pit yeah. stops or anything. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's, a, that's you know, that's unheard of, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Well, not since 79, anyway. Yeah, that's right. He won by about three weeks, didn't he? So- <laughs> <laughs> that's a big win, that one. Yeah, yeah, no safety car. So in those days, that was. No, no.
1: Uh, anyway that was it was lovely it was terrific I, I still remember you know after the races everyone hanging around those old sheds they used to have there gary remember
2: yeah well the, always dick always had that one shed up the back
1: yeah yeah and uh we we're all there having a few beers and you know they were playing on the pa we are the champions <laughs> and uh, yeah I, every time i hear it now i i think flashback to that Bathurst event you know it was pretty very uh, special moment, although I didn't think so at the time so much. I thought, oh, well, of course we should win it. Mm. But you look back, I look back now, and I think I realise how special it
2: was, yeah. The, the Once you the, you thought you win it but didn't for whatever reason, the, do uh, they leave you disappointed at the end? Of it? Do you go away gutted or do you just think, oh, well, I'll come back and win it next year? Or uh,
1: You go home disappointed, of course. But we we didn't win it because uh it was the only year that they made you turn the engine off in the pit stop. So the the FIA excuse me person uh was there. I forget he I, I did know his name. He he made us turn the engine off. He made everyone else turn the engine off too. But you, you got we got mega heat soak into the starter motor and the starter motor wouldn't start the car. So we had to change the starter motor. And that's why we lost. We came second. And Tony Longhurst and Thomas Mazira won the race. Uh, and Wiley, Frank Gardner, had a huge big fan in front of the, the car. <laughs> and when they turned it off, they turned it straight back on again, which circumnavigated the, the yeah. regulations. So they didn't have the issue. Anyway, it was... Uh, it was one of those should have won. There's quite a few that Dick and I should have won, but we didn't.
0: And Bathurst has that story year after year after year, ad nauseum. Every, every uh, garage has got a similar story, don't they, that, that, that they, should have, they should have won it. Yeah, they should
1: have won it or should have finished in the top 10 or yeah, should yeah, have finished yeah. on the podium or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that sort of track. It's like the Indy 500 and the Le Mans, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a mega challenging event and uh, it's different now. It's run differently because of the regulations and things, but it's always a pretty serious achievement if you happen to win it.
0: The Group A era you touched on not long after those wins with, with Dick uh, moved on, the GTR Skylines came along and, and dominated and I guess ended Group A, the the fan support sort of, um, if you if you read into how things played out, allegedly dropped off, and some quick thinking people started to design a, a new category, which we knew once it was launched had a the might and power of IMG behind it, and Tony Cochran took over things, and I'm I'm very much abbreviating how things uh, occurred, and the the supercar era started, and Dick Johnson racing with you still there was still you know, towards the front?
1: Yeah. It, um Group A sort of fizzled a bit because it became very obvious that you had to have a four wheel drive car. Yeah. And the regulations for Group A were that you had to build 5,000 road cars and then 500 variants. You could have a amalgamation special thing. And Board could have made the Sapphire full drive into a Group A car, but obviously there wasn't any interest. Um, <coughs> so people such as Dick, uh, Fred Gibson, Alan Moffat, Larry Perkins, they were the main players. They, with the manufacturers, because the manufacturers were quite involved in it as well, dreamt up these this five-litre, supercar-type regulations, which was designed to race a Falcon and a Commodore, which, you know, I mean, it's funny because back in the day, no one liked the Sierras, and now half the questions I get a- asked are about Sierras. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but
1: back in the day, they used to say, when are you going to race the Falcon, you know, and you, cause you couldn't race the Falcon at the time because... The Group A rules were so strict; you would have had to build all these homologation cars
2: and hold. Dick, and yeah, Dick raced a Group A Falcon in New Zealand, didn't he? A one-off it thing.
1: It wasn't a Group A they made. It was just. It was a, in a Group A race. Yeah, New Zealand has its own. Yeah, you know, interpretation of everything. I mean, I love New Zealand. Don't get me wrong; that's not a criticism of New Zealand. But
0: I know racing, what you're saying. Yeah,
1: they're much more open-minded with what what they allow.
0: Hmm. John, if you don't mind, uh, your supercars career has been covered by numerous other podcasts, the V8 Sleuth, et cetera, et cetera. There's, um, um, you know, you can type in John Bow V8 supercars and entertain yourself on YouTube for a fortnight. Um, I I would, I would, as our, as our um, podcast is grassroots, I'd like to touch on a couple of things in the, in the same era that you got involved with. And one was um, the Alan Horsley RX7s that were um, yes. on the Porsche 968s in, in production car racing and some long-distance races at both Eastern Creek and um, and Bathurst. Uh, my, first of all, my question is, you've you've worked with some names behind the scene. John Shepard, you mentioned Neil Lowe, who you, you had an enduring relationship with later on in GT Racing. Um, Gary Cooper at the top of that list, et cetera, et cetera. Alan Horsley, along the same vein as those guys, was a very, very clever man at uh, at Mazda, wasn't he? Yes, he was. I mean, he,
1: sadly, we lost H recently. Um, he hadn't been well for quite a long time, but he was a, a an operator, you know, a, a true motorsport operator and there's – been quite a few of them over the years, he used to run Oram Park as a promoter and he was an operator then. I didn't know him then, but later on, I obviously got to know him and he, I was always interested in driving other cars, you know, like I, I, I liked different cars. So whilst I had a gig with, with Dick Johnson racing, uh, he offered me a drive in the Mazda team. So, and that was production racing. So, you know, the rules were quite strict and and I drove for him for quite a f- few years on and off. He was a uh, tough, tough bloke, good, good bloke, right, kind, but but tough. He ran ran a very tight ship and he read the rules very closely and he was, you know, an operator, as I said. So it was good fun. I, I drove with uh, Greg Hansford, who was a terrific guy. I drove with uh, Gary Walden, who's likewise terrific guy. With um, Charlie O'Brien, he always used to hire, you know, good drivers, and mm. uh, and he ran a very very good team. Uh, he would have, unfortunately, when you know, production cars turned into more. GT type, yeah, sort of. I don't know how it all unraveled, really, but I mean, the last time I drove for for Mazda and Alan Horsley was in '95 when the RX-7 SP, mm. and he essentially manufactured that in Australia to to make it a production car.
2: That's a white car, wasn't it?
1: A triple M, yeah. That's a white car. yeah. Mazda still own it. Yeah, you drive up. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you drive up uh, past Mulgrave into Masters headquarters, it's still in the showroom there.
0: Yeah, Wellington Road. It sits right in the front. There yeah, well, you can see driving right. past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As you so, were, uh, you were heavily involved in those those twelve hours as well that we're talking about. Your your experience from reporting on those twelve hours. They were big races, weren't they? they had big, oh, big yeah, and things like that.
1: They were terrific. There really was a real sense of adventure, you know, because they essentially were road cars with better – in the early ones, you you weren't even allowed to change the shock absorbers or the springs. Yeah. So they were – you know, it was how you could
2: interpret what the written word was. Yeah, those early 12 hours, like we had – you mentioned Alan Grice before in the Ute with Brad Jones. Remember the whole Ute? The Cobra back thing, and there was – I think Dick ran up there in a laser turbo thing that blew the turbo on the opening lap. Well, you remember? Oh, you remember, he wasn't it. right. He wasn't driving the car, but I
0: think Danny's no uh, was driving it. The first one of the
1: Yieldens was driving it. I think my well, the, y- the
0: Yieldens had that car because we had Luke on. Ah, oh, sorry, not Luke. We had Brett on <laughs> a few uh, episodes ago, and yeah. uh, they forwarded. Asked them to hand the car over to Dick Johnson to run it the year after, because then they ran Brett and Kent Yield and ran the, X, the first of the XR sixes, um, right. and that's when yeah. that when that uh, occurred. So um, yeah, no, it
1: was it was good, interesting times. I mean, Fitzy ran the Porsches, and Jimmy Richards, of course, was very involved with Porsche. Uh, it was interesting times. I don't know what happened to it all. Eventually, I think, uh, you know, Ross Palmer came along and had Pro Car and then we had Nations Cup and, you know, it, it evolves, whether it evolves the right way or not is anybody's guess. But certainly um, I enjoyed driving for, for Horsley because it was, everything was organised, like it was just so, so well done, you know, you'd, you just turned up and drove. And you got paid That's a good part of it I've got to ask
0: you Because I I spent a long Long time of my life Racing rotaries What was it like Going from turbocharged Sierras to V8s uh, In the early days Of supercars To then driving A turbocharged rotary Powered RX-7 Well I mean
1: Production cars Are uh, Not as Tricky to drive You know They 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 were fairly restricted in their what they could do to them. So they were they were not that difficult to drive, but to keeping them alive was the difficult part. Uh, including brakes and you know, I mean the the, the more you rev the Mazda, the more the temperature gauge went
2: up. So, you know, you had yeah, to the-
1: <laughs> you can you could make it go fast but the, the water got on
2: so you had so, to so you you weren't driving at 100 percent all the time you had to button off to a bit to conserve well no,
1: you sort of tried to drive it really fast but not flog it you know so there's a sense of of uh air, you know that you didn't have to utilize in a you know say as 8 or something like you had to be a bit aware that you could belt the crap out of the synchros, that you could kill the brakes. But by the time we got to the SP, the SP had bigger brakes. Horsley had someone in Japan make some brake pads that would have done, you know, a 90-hour race. They lasted so long. <laughs> they was just, I don't know who made them, but they were just an incredible long-lasting brake pad. So you didn't have to – the early days you had to change – brake calipers. So it was you know it was, it was an evolving thing and the, and the SP had a huge fuel tank because as you know rotaries love love a drink. Uh so he basically out-thought and outmaneuvered Porsche because that was the one to beat. Porsche make great cars as you know. So it was an interesting time to be involved in it. And uh yeah, we had a, a great time uh, one year which was the second year of the uh RX7, you know the twin turbo one. Um, I couldn't drive because he got BP sponsorship, and obviously I was very connected to, to Shell with uh, was with Dick's team, so I had to do the commentary. Well, I didn't have to do the commentary. I did the commentary with Will Hagen. One of my favourite memories of all time is one of the ad breaks. We're sitting in this little shed thing with a, you know, with a monitor in front, and um, Will gets his case off the floor, puts it on the table, opens it up and there was last night's pizza. <laughs> so he's, he kept half a pizza from the previous evening's dinner. This probably this, I've been this. in the
0: commentary booth when he's made a very similar manoeuvre.
1: <laughs> uh, so I, ever since then, I call him Pizza Hagen and if we ever have a... A conversation on, on the uh, you know by text or something. He signs off as Peter Hagen
0: Very funny. He was a great commentator, though. I thought, I, I think he was fantastic. An amazing vocabulary. He really did. Absolutely. He had a word for every situation,
1: and 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 a the a, a presence of
0: voice. You know, it was terrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly. Yeah, um, you touched on earlier the the um, Ross Palmer, and you. Uh, eventually got yourself into a 355 challenge which um, you know that's where I alluded to before Neil Lowe was running the team for Ross Palmer and um, you put yourself into a a prancing horse uh, badged car and you spent uh, quite a long time driving different variations of, of that car and Nations Cup came along where um, I've got to say I really enjoyed the Nations Cup era it was when I started to I'd hung up the helmet and uh, the driving boots and uh, had started working on cars and um, that that whole era, um, massively backed, of course, by um, Ross Palmer, was was some fun times in the, in those. For I
1: honestly think uh, Ross is very under acknowledged and under appreciated in Australian motorsport because he, without Ross, we wouldn't have had a rebirth of production cars. We wouldn't have had. You know what is now GT3. I mean that grew out of uh, Nations Cup. We wouldn't have had Utes, Formula you know, Three as well. Formula Three. So like he was, he he made an outstanding contribution to Australian motorsport. The only problem was there was a bit of you know it was a bit like the Group C era and uh, what I'm not sure supercars is like that now, but it's it's a bit like the lobby factor, you know, there was a lot of lobby went on, a lot of maneuvering behind the scenes, so the rules or the spec of the cars changed fairly constantly. But it was still interesting. I mean the Ferrari was back in GTP, it was called GT production, and Porsche had the nine 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 three RSCS. Yeah. Yeah. And Ross imported a Ferrari challenge car to race. So that was, it added some flavor to it. And Neil was also running his uh, Ross's uh, Super Touring, like Mondeo's. So, uh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember yeah, so that, I in, those I, nine. I, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed the Ferrari. The Ferrari, when it first arrived, the Ferrari as it came from, the fact it was a shopping thing that we, we massaged it into shape with Neil's knowledge, and we had some, a bloke called Keith Weir, who, one of the common threads of this interview really is that a lot of the people that used to be involved are no longer with us. So, a bit, bit of a sad indictment, but Keith Weir, whose nickname was Dune, he worked for Neil and was a great racer. You know, he'd worked for Dick before, he was a great racer.
0: Keith and or Keith no. Dune, as you, you called him, was a feature of the paddock with you for, for a long, long time and was uh, a great, a great bloke to have around. The the um, the Ferrari used to just go, just as an interesting
1: <clears throat>
0: about Dune with that
1: Ferrari. Murray Coote built some shock absorbers for us. And uh Dune and I were we we used to call it our shock absorber phase. It lasted with me <laughs> for about 20 years. Um, we used to pull the shock absorbers apart, doing did it. I used to stand there and watch him and talk to him about it. Um, and we'd revalve them. We had a shock dyno in the truck. We'd revalve them between practice sessions. Hmm. So we—it we was an obsession, an obsession. <laughs>
0: I mentioned, early, I, mentioned, I mentioned earlier Phil Hughes and I'm, I'm actually just trying to find, I was going to quote him directly off there so I don't get it wrong and he doesn't chase me down the road. But he said one of the features of working with John Bow was he never went on the track with the same car, with the same setup twice. He would always come in and have one, sometimes two changes to make and Dune was always there to, to wicked keep and make sure that the rest of the guys, you know, the, the Paul Crookshanks and the Phil Hughes of the world were... Were there to to perfect that manoeuvre or that change or whatever it was, and and Bill did say one of the you know one of the John Bowe's features and why he won races was because he was always exploring the next step. And you said it in your own words: <laughs> twenty years of uh, obsession on shock absorbers. Absolutely. We even up
1: until the Caterpillar days, we you know we used to revalve between uh, you know, pull it. There's quite complex things. Pull them apart, change something inside the shock, put it back together, and run it on the dyno and compare it to what we had before. You know, like it was a very fascinating thing that I sort of slowly grew out of over time.
2: Did you dyno know. did dyno testing before you put them on the car? Reflect on the car. Like, did it? If you bought oh, well, is. this is better, but was it actually better when you put it on the car or? No. Or sometimes oh, yeah, it didn't so work. generally,
1: generally speaking, I mean, you need as a driver, you need some sort of thing from the car. You need something that maybe you haven't got, so you mm-hmm. tried to. That's why I call it the shock absorber phase. You, we tried to achieve it with the shock absorber. Sometimes you would, sometimes you wouldn't. But let me tell you, they're a pretty important part of the car, <laughs> <laughs> and they've become. It's funny because uh, you know that was a interesting technical part of racing now the, the say you take the supercars they have a control shock absorber so that's another area the engineers have no say on no control on uh gt3 has an homologated shock absorber gt4 has an so the manufacturer nominates the shock absorber basically and you know so it's not as not as technically interesting uh, I, I believe Formula One's still technically interesting and but it was expensive. just <laughs> an expensive I think there's no such thing as cheap motor racing.
0: Well, someone invents a category uh, that makes it cheap and then someone wants to win it more than someone else and invests all the money in it to win it. Then it's not cheap anymore, is it?
1: Well, it seems to be a pattern, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't know much about XL racing or HQ racing or anything really, or, uh, but it, they, you know, it starts off as a very affordable and ends up as, you know, not affordable, doesn't it, or, or not affordable to the masses. I want to move, I want to move hey, the
0: Ferrari talk, John, if we can, to the 2002 Ferrari 360 NGT, which which moved the the Ferrari, let's say, um, let's say the customer sport aspect of Ferrari into a, a very much a new generation of GT three cars. Um, yeah, you know, the Michelotto name started to become involved with uh, with building those cars for Ferrari and things like that. The the change from the 355 Challenge car to that, you know, the 360 NGT, which we, you know, we also saw um, great mates like Alan Simonson driving those cars as well. Um, yeah. The, In your opinion, the change from the 355 to the 360 NGT as a driver, was there, was it, was it as stratospheric as it looked from the outside?
1: No, not really. I mean, the the, the 355 challenge was always tricky because it had, it, most of its life, it had no external wings. It had a floor and a little venturi at the back, which you could use, we did use it, we got it to work. Um, but it was still tricky, especially high-speed stuff. Right at the end of his 355's life, the Challenge car had a wing, so that made it better. Um, and then it got to Nations Cup, and then there was a 360 Challenge car. Yeah. Uh, and then by that stage, it was Prancing Horse who I was driving for. So Tony Rafters was the man behind all that. Uh Mark Coffey, who's became Marinello Motorsport, was was work for Tony, and was sort of Paul Crookshank was the team manager, ran the sort of boys. So Tony made a very serious contribution to it. Uh, we eventually got, or he he got a, uh, a three hundred and sixty NGT, which was like another step. Yeah, it was it was another step, but everybody was getting steps. You know, there yeah. was and there was. Lots of political manoeuvrings behind the scenes of, from various people. One of
0: those political manoeuvrings, which, any, no. yeah, yeah, one of the interesting political manoeuvrings, and I remember it in '98 when we ran the Lotus Elise at Winton. All of a sudden, the I can't remember the scrutineers or the stewards said, "Yeah, all have to have tow hooks." And all of a sudden, in a race, everyone went out with the screw-in tow hooks in the front of their their cars. And, um, I do remember the back of the elise when you were trying to get past it at one stage when it came in had had peppered holes in the back of it from the tow hook on the front <laughs> of the Ferrari as it was uh, was trying to get through and I, I said to I said to Stokel, I said, what's all this damage on the back here? And he said, Bowie, trying to get through. He he had the tow hook out the front, and I think he didn't realise that there was a foot and a half of extra car in front of him. Oh, no,
1: I I remembered. I knew it was there.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were funny. They weren't that funny at the time. But I had a go at... uh, Same thing with Fitzy at Winton one day. He had that... uh, Porsche of some, I don't know what model it was.
0: Was it the 911 RSCS that Dom Beninka had great success with, I think was well, in that, that Dom era?
1: Won
0: a, Dom won a race at Calder one day in it.
1: That yep. was when, when I had the three five or raced the 3.5.5 five, and Gary Walden had the Viper which ran out of brakes in five seconds. Um, Dom had uh, RSCS, Jimmy had RSCS, Fitzy had RSCS. Forbes had so one really, too. Who had one?
0: Rodney Forbes had one as well.
1: Oh, yeah, he had a left-hand drive one.
0: Uh, Cam McConville. Cam McConville won the championship. Yeah,
1: he did. Yeah, so um, it was good racing, but that evolved into Nations Cup, and then the cars evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved. So uh, eventually it became GT3, and that has since evolved. The the GT3 car now costs you a million bucks at least before you turn a wheel, so most of them anyway. Mm. So it's quite expensive, but the cars evolved in many, many ways, uh, and now we've got about to start what I consider to be a sensible category called GT4, and we'll see where it goes. You know, I mean, the yeah, cars are turnkey cars; they're not stupidly expensive. They've got incredibly long service lives, like the one I'm going to drive with Jacob Lawrence, is uh, it's, it's a 30,000-kilometre engine rebuild. So
0: that's a lot. Yeah, isn't it in a racing a in a and race that, world? And those cars are quick
2: too. I, down at the bend when you raced it down there, just standing in pits, just watching those cars go past, they're stupidly quick, aren't they, in a straight line?
1: Well, life? they're quick enough to be interesting. I mean, compared to a GT3 car, they're not, because GT3 cars evolved... Through aero massively, the, the you know, I drove early GT3 cars, and the aero performance of the last evolution of them all is just yeah. mega, you know.
2: But maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm comparing it to the production BMWs that we. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're faster than a production car, yeah, um but they
1: just they they're quick enough to be interesting, but not crazy prices i i, I believe anyway we'll, time will tell um but I, i'm of the opinion which is quite a radical opinion really that i don't share with everybody at aero ruin motor racing you a just shared it, it with everyone that.
0: john
2: you're on the grassroots <laughs> racing podcast
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. it's, not, yeah. it's
2: not something you worry about at grassroots racing no, probably,
1: <laughs> probably not. But I mean, you know, the, the more and more aero you, you the cars end up with, the the more it is difficult to follow, the more the braking distances get shorter and shorter. Uh it's like car, carbon brakes, you know. You put, carbon brakes shortens the rate the distance. I'm gonna get a coffee here, but you folks are wearing me out.
0: Um, okay, <laughs> let's keep wearing you out. We we can't we cannot let you go without referring to Touring Car Masters and the the wonderful, uh, I guess, uh, resurgence in your life that that Mustang Sally first of all delivered to you, and uh, then of course the Tirana in in recent times. You uh, I think it was two thousand and seven decided that that full time racing enough was enough. Um, you've been fairly well documented that. Uh, you you struggled with full time retirement, being that you'd been a professional athlete for a long time, and touring car masters arrived, and uh, you had a big smile on your face, going racing all over again.
2: Um,
1: yeah, sort of. It wasn't that simple. I mean, I'd, <clears throat> I'd, um, my last year or two years of supercars, I'd um, hadn't had the results I'd liked, or I'd expected of myself. And uh, people, a lot of you know, people like you, blokes, journalists, yeah. were calling me a uh, you know a veteran, and some unkind ones were saying you know you should move aside and let some young bloke have a go, you know. And I uh, I became increasingly depressed, and I mean really depressed. And I've I've spoken about it many times, and I've done quite a lot of work on it, and I've talked to lots of people about it. So it was a life-threatening depression. And as I retired from, uh, you just see me there, I just double duty. I've fixed my coffee machine and talked to you at the same time. That's not bad, is it?
0: That's, That's all right. Yeah. for a
1: male, apparently. You change yeah. gears and turn <laughs> the steering
0: wheel at the same time, so well done.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, changing gears in a paddle shift car is not that difficult. Even I can do that. <laughs> uh, yeah,
0: but the Tirana and Mustang Sally were very far from paddle shift.
1: Yeah, no, they were, but but anyway, the, to cut the story short, I was helped out by people uh, to continue racing, and and I chose touring car masters because I liked those cars, and and it turned out to be very good for me, and and it was terrific. The cars were challenging to drive, real old school things, very powerful, small tires, small brakes. Uh, Good guys to race with in most cases, although there's a couple of cowboys, but um, so it was really good and they were popular with the public, so it allowed me to be John Bow the racing driver. Still sounds silly, but and I uh, won, it, it
0: doesn't quite, sound silly at all. No, it's it's exactly what it is.
1: And I won quite a lot of races and championships and all that, so it, I love uh motor racing, I mean, I absolutely love it, so that's why I'm still doing it and it's not easy to continue to do it all the time because first of all it costs quite a lot of money you got to have the right people around you my expectation of myself is still quite high I know I'm past my best how could you be at your best at this stage of your life but because i never stopped doing it and I always You know, I'm serious about racing. I I try and have fun, but I'm brain-trained to be serious about it. I'm very grateful to be able to continue in it for for a little longer. How long that will be will be anybody's guess. Might be this year, might be the last year, maybe next year. Who knows? Who knows? There is comes a time everybody's... Or, you know, I've discussed with my, uh, my partner, Leslie, that we might buy a little... Open wheeler and a trailer and head off into the distance and race here, there, and everywhere. You know who knows? I honestly don't know. Please,
0: please, please I'm gonna... get a Formula Ford and come and race in the Victorian State Circuit Racing Championships, and uh, you can you can uh, enjoy that uh, with the young blokes. That'd be uh, that'd be awesome. No, I don't they... think they're a bit willing in those Formula Fords. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: they are a bit. You're right. I've, I've, uh... I think I've served my time tangling wheels with people but <laughs> but uh you know group I like group O because it's they got big tires so they got good mechanical grip no aero no wings and they're real proper little racing cars so who knows but that it, it my focus this year will be to drive with Jacob Lawrence who's a terrific bloke uh I've been Coaching him, sort of thing, as and we've got a little team together, and we're going to do the GT4 races. And his uh, his dad Pete's probably going to do some as well. So you know it'll be enjoyable. Hopefully, there's going to be, I believe, you know, twenty cars plus. And the the cars are great fun. They like a go kart with a roof. <laughs> if you can imagine a go kart with a roof. <laughs>
2: Aussie racing car, isn't
1: it? <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose it is, isn't it? But, yeah, I've never driven an Aussie racing car, so I couldn't comment. But um yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a, so different to a touring car masters or a supercar that it's a whole new brain program. You know, you almost gotta reprogram yourself to drive one.
2: And of course, in that in that period too, that there's been other things. Is that back at the 12 hour, I guess. The first thing that comes to mind a BMW. With Gary
1: oh, yeah. He, uh... We uh, we won the 12 hour with yeah. um, uh, Mick Salo Pete Edwards. Pete Edwards was the, owns the car and Craig uh, Lowndes. I was talking about the uh, the production car 12 hour. Oh yeah, oh, we yeah. won that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's a it's been a really. I mean, honestly, we've only touched on the edges of it, but it's been a. Uh, when I stop to think about it, which is not very often. Um, I think, how lucky have I been? How lucky, you know? Really, I haven't hurt myself other than once at Winton, um, which wasn't my fault, by the way. Uh, I've managed to race all these different cars. Meet, I've met some wonderful, wonderful people. And I've had lots of help, and, you know, so I'm very lucky. But that doesn't change the fact that this year I still want to race
0: a car, and this year yes. I still want to. You know, it's, it's sort of an ongoing, isn't it? It's like a disease. One of the one of the one of the bad bits of doing an audio only podcast, John, is that we, we say this quite often: is that um, uh, when you when you start to talk about that, and the subject matter happens to be John Bow, the smile on your face is like I'm going racing again this year, and you get this smile from ear to ear, and uh, and that's what's and, and race drivers look like. That yes, we've done all this stuff. Yeah, I'll look what's next. What's on the horizon? What's next? I'm not the only one that
1: feels this way. There's many, many people, but but it is terrific. I I go to a racetrack even if I'm not driving, but it's much better when I am driving. But uh, and I'm in my happy place. You know, it's 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 been my life since I was a baby. I mean, I was taken to Longford races in a bassinet for goodness sake. So. <laughs> You know, must have in,
2: in, in, inhaled a heap of uh, fumes.
0: Avgas then would and would then.
1: Have been, <laughs> then. <laughs> it might have been methanol, mate. Yeah, <laughs> it might have been
0: alcohol-based, yeah, something like
1: yeah, that. Yeah, my, my dad's uh, old MG, where, you know, his MG special, that his first racing car was a supercharged car and ran on methanol.
0: Yeah, good time.
1: So I tried to put it in the lawnmower once, but it wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> can't
0: adjust the timing right. to get it to work.
1: <laughs> yeah, or something. I don't know. I got into a bit of strife about it. Anyway, uh,
0: John, at this point in time in the Racefields Grassroots Racing podcast, we, I guess, we salute what is a uh, and an, an, a behemoth of a career, and 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 we really appreciate um, your. How do you
1: how do you spell
0: that? I don't know. I just know how to say it. Um, and yes? actually, Tony Quinn asked me to, what the meaning of it was once before as well, and I said I don't know either. But it's something pretty. Oh, right, okay. It's something pretty big. Um, I like to ask a couple of questions and, it's, and, and I, I'll, I'll make it a two-parter. First one, over the journey, you've driven into the racetrack and it could be once, it could have happened a thousand times and you look over and you go, oh, God, that guy's here or that girl's here and you go, "That's that person has just irked me from day one. And uh, second of all, you're one. You can only, you've only got one, your one favorite moment at a racetrack and it doesn't have to be winning or pole position, just a moment where you went, you know, when you, in 10 years time, you look back and you go, that was one time that I really enjoyed. Oh, look, I've enjoyed lots of things, mate. Um, What do you want me to name the person that irks
1: me the most? Yeah. Let's ask, (laughs) you know, that's that's a bit. Controversial. I mean, I could say, but
0: he'd probably hear it, and then he. <laughs> and and if and, then, and if it is controversial, just leave it on the table. We'll move on to the to the. One there'll, be, uh,
1: there'll be there'll uh, be some retribution if I say that's all. I would think because he's a, a retribution type of person.
0: leave it on? Why,
2: why don't we just rephrase that as the toughest competitor you've raced? Oh, look, lots of tough
1: competitors. You know, I
2: think. And I, I don't mind tough competitors. They're fine.
1: They're fine. Tough racing tough racing. Dirty racing is not tough racing.
0: Was Alfie Costanzo the toughest guy you raced against? Oh, no, no, no. Alfie
1: was a very good competitor. Uh, fairly, you know, well-behaved, to be honest. Yeah. Like, pretty good competitor, yeah. Um, very good competitor. Very good driver. Great bloke. Um, there's plenty of tough people out there. I mean, I've done a, what seems like a million races against Jim Richards. He's, he was a very tough competitor, but a, but a good competitor. You know, you don't mind a good, hard race. You just don't like being run off the road for no reason or,
0: mm,
2: mm,
1: mm. you know, stupid behaviour that can end in a, a serious shunt or something. But most of the time, you know, uh, supercars... I mean, I've I've caused some damage and I've had, accepted some damage because it's hard racing, um, and it's generally pretty well policed. You know, you can't have people belting other people off the road all the time. You can't have that as an accepted thing. First of all, because it's it's uh, you know dangerous, and secondly, it's crazy expensive. So mm. you know, you yeah. got to you got to have driver standards and. Most of the time, they're pretty well adhered to, I think, anyway. You know, like it's not an easy sport to to uh, adjudicate on, is it? Because everybody yeah. generally, if you've got an incident... There's <laughs> up... usually
2: three versions, isn't it?
1: yeah, <laughs> there? It's exactly right. <laughs> The flag marshals and the two drivers. It is it is
0: interesting because we've had James Taylor, who's the well, he was the new race director back back two years ago, and we had him on. But he yeah. he was the same thing. He's one of these guys that has to do that. Him and Craig Baird at the you know at the top level, and they're going to oh, be working they do
1: with a terrific job.
0: They do a, a, a mega job, I think. Anyway, I think yeah, and then there's,
1: there's a school of thought, and I think it was uh, advocated recently by. Roland Dane to some degree is that you know you got to get get more of the Biffo back again. I don't know whether that's true. I mean, the racing in supercars is very close and very tough, mm. and that's what you get when you get all equal cars.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and if you don't want them uh, want it to be like that, well, then you don't don't have the cars equal. You know, you let teams develop as they want to, which becomes more expensive, I suppose. There's no real hard and fast set of regulations that guarantee good racing or, or a lack of uh, contact. But it's interesting. when The few times I've raced in America, this is a historic racing, they say at the driver's briefing, if you touch another car, you might as well come in and put your car in the trailer mm. because you're not going, to get, not going to race anymore. I think that applies to historic racing here. It should do anyway. It I doesn't. It,
2: yeah, I think there's moves to try and get that in place. Because mm. be historic racing me. should be about
1: the cars and enjoying them and, you know, the history of the sport and things like that. And there's some great cars out there. But taking it crazy seriously is probably not not appropriate for historic racing. Mm. Yeah. You know, no one's going to no get a drive with... Uh, Williams by racing at Phillip
0: Island Historics. <laughs> John, the, the single moment, I know you said you've had thousands of great moments, but is there one that you at this, you know, right here, right now that you can go, yep, yeah, standing on the podium at Bathurst in XYZ was awesome. And that is my number one feeling, or was it the first time you sat in the, the Elf and formula two car? Yeah. What was, is there anything?
1: Oh, look, honestly, the, the things that stick in your mind, most of all are, are, are winning, of course. Um, but I think, you know, looking back, the most enjoyable thing was when we won, Dick and I won Bathurst uh, in the Falcon. And that was, it was a massive team effort. Uh, the first time we won this Sierra, I was not as involved as I was later with the car development and... Ross and Jimmy Stone were at DJR then and I had a great relationship with them and we had a, you know, we won the race on, on merit um, in a competitive era and, and it was terrific, yeah. So that's probably the, but, I, you know, I think you said in my stats I've, I've won 250-something races or something. So winning's always great, but I don't honestly care that much about winning but obviously, winning is better than not winning, you know. So, so <laughs> it's not that I go to a, you know, if I if I come third or tenth, as long as I feel like I've done a good job, I I'm happy. Nowadays, I'm happy.
2: Do you have um, ones that you really feel bad about afterwards? Not your fault, but um, I was, only reason I ask is because um, I remember Gold Coast with. Dick, remember that?
1: Yeah, of course I remember that. Um, <laughs> I'm not as silly as I look. Uh,
2: <laughs> the yeah, uh, uh,
1: yeah, that was unfortunate. That was we got into a bit of strife because before the cars had stopped, the, the man, the boss from Shell, was on the phone. But um, that was just unfortunate. What? What? Yeah, misunderstanding.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah I was uh, I covered that meeting and I was talking to Larry who was just in front of you, the pair of you, and um, Larry said to me, he said, "Have you spoken to Dick? Because you'd already gone, I think." And I said, "Yeah, I did actually." <laughs> and Larry said, "Well, what did he say?" And he said, "Well, he blamed you." <laughs> he said, "Why?" He said, "Well, he reckoned you broke a bit earlier and it threw him out <laughs> about what he should be doing." <laughs> you know, it was a funny. It was a, it was a.
1: Unfortunately, yeah, it was a. Uh, I, I I covered him off on the so I had the inside line, but I did break a bit early because I was on the dirty track. And
2: anyway, now when I say that Dick blamed you, I meant he blamed Larry, he didn't blame you. Oh, no, you. It wasn't. no it wasn't. But Larry, Larry was in front of the pair of you, was he? I can't remember. I thought it was yeah. Longhurst. Well, they both had Castrol cars, so
1: yeah, no, anyway. Thanks for bringing that up.
2: high <laughs> oh, note, oh, sorry. Looks like,
0: looks like we won't be talking. You? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's no, let's just... celebrate the, the 200 and I think it's 280 race wins or, or something like that. When you get over 250, it's uh, it becomes interesting. And the other stat goes that you, you dropped there earlier on was uh, the, the, one in five race wins. That's um, that's just an amazing, amazing feat. And, and, Certainly, something to on a on a on a weekend. Put your feet up and uh, and uh, put some ice in a glass and have a nice gin tonic to uh, to round out the uh, round out the day, Bowie. It's uh, it's fantastic. At this point, oh, we are you, we are seriously out of time. And um, John Bow it is it has been. Uh, immense to have this, have you on our, our humble little show, and to for you to invest all this time in a couple of blokes talking at you over a Zoom meeting. So, thank you very much for joining us on the Race Fuels Grassroots Racing. Podcast. Thank you,
1: thank you for being interested. I mean, uh, uh, let's uh, do one at the end of the year, and we'll see what the GT4 brings. Because it's, uh, I just think it's interesting. You know, as a racing person, regardless, I'm interested in all sorts of racing. It's, uh, I think it's a Decent set of rules. that's going to be run by SRO, which is the, the world owner of GT3 and GT4. So it's going to be non-cheatable.
2: Is 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 there such a word? Uh, uh, no, no one cheats in motorsport, do they? Oh, don't they? Oh. No, I think everyone does, but some do
0: it better than others. It's normally only yeah. on the day that you get caught that you've done the cheating, guys. That's probably <laughs> what it was. It was something yeah, we did maybe, this morning. Maybe you're <laughs> right. This this is, uh, you know, it's a...
1: We understand it's a, what you're saying. It's a, it's a sore point, isn't it? But um, this, I'm, I'm really interested in this category, so I think it's great that I'm going to have a chance to race in it. There's some good guys in it, some good... The cars are all bop so they should be reasonable as a, a, a far of equalness. But what I did find at the bend is, which is the only race I've done, uh, is that there's strengths and weaknesses of all of them. So, in say supercars, they're all the same, so it's very mm. hard to to get past someone in in the GT fours that I've experienced so far, which is very Novicey, there's the one will stop better, one will be quicker on the straight, one will be a bit quicker in into the corners or out of the corners or something. So, there's a bit of give and take, which, which was sort of like group A. So, it, it should be good. And it's going to be on channel seven, I believe, seven mate or something like three. So, who knows? There's, there's got to be more racing that that. Uh, entertains people than just supercars. I mean, I know supercars are the top of the heap and it always will be, probably. But, you know, Trans Am has some good racing and uh, hopefully this will give some good racing as well. Well, I'm sort of hoping, board?
0: John, that, that, that uh, I'm calling the GT4 races on seven, mate, this year. there have been some conversations this week. So hopefully uh, we're doing some race meetings together this year as well. Oh, that'll be t- t- terrific, mate.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's, uh, you know... I know it's like Formula One's the, the pinnacle in open wheel stuff, but there's other racing around the world that is pretty good, good racing and interesting. So, you know, you can't just have one level of racing. So I'm hope, hoping, and, and uh, you know, the the cars and driver combinations that have been announced so far, they're, they're good. You know, the cars are good and the drivers are good, so it should be correct.
0: A yeah, bit of fun. Yeah, hopefully. Hey, guys, I'm just watching a timer here and we are about 18 seconds from running out of time. So thank you again, John, for joining us. And um, we'll have this out in the next uh, few days. Hopefully we'll put some pressure on your uh, mate that uh, did the kids' book for you, Grant Rowley, to get the job done.
1: Oh, he's a good good guy, Grant Rowley. Um, very good at his gig. I think he's going to be doing some uh, GT4 stuff as well. Correct, yeah. So that's, that's terrific if he is because he did a great job with, you know, Touringco masters when he was doing stuff and it was really really good 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 guy to work with so yes okay i'll talk to you soon and um i'll see you at the track yeah thank you very much
2: you've just listened to a speed cafe pod hub production